trivial knowledge. A little bit about a whole lot. My name is Stephanie, and I'm excited to bring to you this next episode of Trivial Knowledge. Today, we have another interesting group of topics, continuing our exploration of the Apollo 1 mission and discovering the history of one of the most famous tennis tournaments, Wimbledon. Anyway, before we start, here's a little bit of background for those who are listening for the first time. Each podcast episode brings you a weekly dose of knowledge from five different topics drawn from four broad categories. And to add to the fun, one topic will be acquired from a random Wikipedia page. With such an extensive range of topics, there's going to be something here for everyone. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to my podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now let's dive into episode 15, Strawberries and Cream, Backbenchers, and Volcanoes. Social Sciences It's always been fascinating to me to learn the inner workings of different governments and the little intricacies of each. Today, we are going to travel to the United Kingdom and learn about an aspect of the Westminster parliamentary system called backbenchers. Before I started researching backbenchers, I had a very basic understanding on how the parliamentary system worked in the UK, and it was interesting to really delve into the importance of backbenchers in this system. So of course, the first question I asked during my research was, who and what exactly are backbenchers? A backbencher is a rank-and-file member of the parliament who does not hold a governmental office and is not a front-bench spokesman. This could be for several reasons, including being a newly elected member who hasn't received a high office, a senior figure dropped from the government, someone who intentionally chooses not to sit in the ministry or shadow ministry and prefers to remain a background influence, or a member that does not reliably support all of their party's goals. The term itself dates back to 1855, when these members physically sat behind the front bench in the House of Commons, which is the democratically elected House of Parliament. Because backbenchers form the vast majority of MPs, together they can exercise considerable power. The right committee reform provided backbenchers more power on committees and also increased their membership on these committees. The Commons Backbench Business Committee, created in 2010, allows debates that otherwise were unlikely to occur, with each debate ending with a vote. 300 debates have been held by this committee since its formation, with a wide range for topics from prisoner voting rights to the Hillsborough disaster. Another mechanism in place for backbenchers to scrutinize the work of the minister is through parliamentary questions, or PQs. PQs take two main forms, written and oral questions. Oral questions are allowed for one hour every day, and the department who answers the questions rotates. Every Wednesday, the Prime Minister also answers oral questions for 30 minutes. Along with oral questions, MPs can also submit written questions to receive answers from the government in writing. Along with PQs, backbenchers can also ask urgent questions, known as UQs. They typically use this method when they require an immediate response from the government. The Speaker of the House of Commons, who is the highest authority of the House of Commons, grants requests for UQs at his or her discretion. Yet another way backbenchers can impact Parliament are through emergency debates. 
This is used if an MP believes that the Commons should debate a specific and important matter that should have urgent consideration. Again, the Speaker determines if the debate will occur, and if it does, the maximum amount of time for the debate is 3 hours. So for example, following the Queen's speech in 2017, there were 13 emergency debates, including on the rollout of universal credit and on the conflict in Yemen. It's not only questions that backbencher MPs can use to make an impact. They can also bring their own bills before Parliament through a private member's bill, which can be submitted in three different ways, including as presentation bills, 10-minute rule bills, and ballot bills. Presentation bills are when an MP gives notice of their intention to introduce a private member's bill, and then they do so. They may only read the title of the bill in the House and may not speak in support of it. 10-minute rule bills occur when an MP is given one of a limited number of slots where they can introduce their bill with a speech no longer than 10 minutes. Lastly, an MP can submit a bill through a ballot, but only 20 of these are allowed each session. Using these three ways, backbenchers introduce almost 7 times as many bills as the government, but only 7-10% to actually become bills considerably less than the 90% introduced by the government. For those interested in knowing what life is like of an opposition backbencher MP, Carl McDonald published a daily schedule for an MP interested in children's health on inews.co.uk, which I will have linked on my website. Strawberries and cream, grass courts, white dress. For anyone who loves tennis, these words bring one tournament to your mind, the championships at Wimbledon. Wimbledon, one of the four tennis grand slams and the only one to be played on grass, is the oldest tennis tournament and possibly the most prestigious, with the first tournament being held back in 1877 by the All England Croquet and Lawn Tennis Club. After making the decision to host the first lawn tennis tournament, the club placed an announcement in the Field magazine on June 9, 1877. Prior to the first tournament, the All England Club established the formal rules, which are still familiar today, including adopting the tennis scoring based on a clock face, establishing the first to win six games wins the set, and allowing the server to have one fault. On July 9, 1877, the first Wimbledon tournament was held at the All England Club at Warple Road, Wimbledon. 22 men paid the 11 shilling entrance fee, though only 21 showed up for the tournament. The final was played before 200 spectators on July 19th after being rescheduled for rain between William Marshall and W. Spencer Gore. The match lasted only 48 minutes, with Gore dominating with a strong volley game at the net. In 1884, the tournament was expanded to include men's doubles and ladies' singles, with 13 women entering the tournament. Maud Watson won the first singles title, defeating her sister Lillian. In the 1890s, ladies' doubles and mixed doubles were added as non-championship matches before being awarded full championship status in the 1910s. In 1926, King George V and Queen Mary's son, the Duke of York, and future King George VI, became the only royal member to compete at Wimbledon when he played in the men's doubles match. 
In the 1930s, the BBC began televising the broadcast, though it wasn't until 1986 that Wimbledon replaced the white tennis balls with yellow to be better viewed on the television screen. The tournament started out as an amateur player tournament, and it remained that way for over 90 years, until 1968, when professionals were allowed to compete. In 2007, it also became the final Grand Slam tournament to give equal pay to the men and women winners. With Wimbledon being the first tennis tournament ever played, there are a lot of traditions that have been established. The first tradition at Wimbledon are the strawberries and cream served each year. These have been served since the very first Wimbledon tournament in 1877. So why did strawberries become congruous with Wimbledon? A quote from Johnny Perkins, the All England Club's head of PR, in an article by Chris Borg posted on CNN on June 30th, 2015 says, It was probably two things. Strawberries were in season at the time the tournament was played, and in Victorian England, they had become a fashionable thing to eat. They were part of afternoon tea, which had become a fashionable ritual, and that took root at Wimbledon. The strawberries, harvested from fields in Kent County at 4 a.m. the same day they are served, are sold in a basket of 10 and can be bought with or without cream. Another tradition of Wimbledon is their strict dress code, which started at the inaugural tournament. The main rule is that players must wear suitable tennis attire that is almost entirely white. This started in the Victorian era because white clothing was believed to be more breathable and showed less sweat, which was considered improper at this time. Today, players must wear white, not off-white, not cream, though a non-white trim is allowed along the necklines, sleeve cuffs, or outside seam of shorts or skirts, as long as it is no longer than one centimeter wide. Several players have gotten in trouble for violating the strict dress code, including Roger Federer in 2013, when he wore shoes with orange bottoms. Andre Agassi actually boycotted Wimbledon for several years due to his strict dress code, as he liked to wear bright colors while playing. Another famous part of Wimbledon, at least in more recent times, is Rufus the Hawk. Rufus patrols the ground of Wimbledon year-round as a non-lethal pigeon deterrent. Per his handler, Imogen Davis, he knows exactly where his favorite spots are, but also where the pigeons like to hide. So every day, he does whatever takes his fancy, but is never predictable. He even has his own Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook accounts. This year, Wimbledon, which is typically played in late June and early July, has been canceled for the first time since World War II. But we will hopefully be back next year to watch players in white play on grass courts while eating strawberries and cream at the most prestigious tennis tournament in the world. Science and Technology Welcome to part 3 of our tribute to Apollo 1. Today we will focus on the third and final member of the Apollo 1 crew, Roger Chaffee. Roger Chaffee's story begins before he was even born. In January 1935, his father, Don Chaffee, caught scarlet fever and was placed in quarantine. His mother, Blanche, was pregnant with Roger at the time and due to her exposure, was not allowed to deliver at a hospital for fear of infecting other patients. And she also could not deliver at home due to risk of exposure to the baby. Instead, Blanche and her two-year-old daughter, Donna, 
moved to her parents' home in Grand Rapids, and two weeks later, Roger Chaffee entered the world on February 15, 1935. By the end of February, his father was no longer under quarantine, and the family reunited at their home in Greenville, Michigan. Don Chaffee was a barnstorming pilot who flew a Waco 10 biplane. When Roger was seven years old, his father took him up in an airplane for the first time during a trip to Lake Michigan. Roger loved the experience and fell in love with flying. His father, wanting to encourage this interest in planes and flying, would build model airplanes with his son, and by the time Roger was nine years old, he knew he would be a pilot. Growing up, Roger was a well-rounded child with several interests. Along with model planes, he enjoyed playing with his electric train set and developed a love for music in the fifth grade, singing in a citywide chorus as well as playing the French horn, cornet, and trumpet. At age 13, Roger joined the Boy Scouts, eventually achieving the rank of Eagle Scout. His interest in his future career changed throughout high school, going from electronics engineering to nuclear physicist, and finally wanting to make history by becoming the first man on the moon. Roger graduated Central High School in Grand Rapids, Michigan in 1953. He enrolled at the Illinois Institute of Technology in Chicago under a Naval ROTC scholarship. By the end of his freshman year, he made the decision to major in aeronautical engineering, which combined his love for math and flying. He applied to transfer to Purdue University, which was well known for its aeronautical engineering program, and was accepted for the fall 1954 semester. During his junior year at Purdue, he went on a blind date with his future wife, Martha Horn, whose first impression of him was as a handsome but smart aleck upperclassman. Nonetheless, they continued to date and married in the summer of 1957. During his final semester of university, he began his Naval ROTC Air Cadet flight training. Only 24 days after his first flight, he received approval to fly solo, passing his private flight test on May 24, 1957. In 1957, he graduated from Purdue with distinction and was accepted into Tau Beta Pi, the highly regarded engineering honor society. Following graduation, he completed military flight training in Pensacola, Florida, before transferring to Kingsville, Texas to train on the F-9F Cougar jet. Over the next several years, he worked a variety of assignments, including flying U.S. reconnaissance flights during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and photographing Soviet missiles being moved to Cuba. He also went to safety and reliability school, and one of his collateral jobs was as a safety and quality control officer at the Heavy Photographic Squadron 62 in Jacksonville, Florida. His co-workers at his job noted he was very precise and required perfection. There was only one way, the perfect way, nothing less would do. But even during this time, he knew what he really wanted to do was go to space. In mid-1962, NASA began its recruitment for the third group of astronauts and Chaffee was in a pool of initially 1,800 applicants. After many months of tests, Roger Chaffee was chosen as one of the 14 astronauts in NASA's third group, becoming the youngest astronaut at the time ever selected. Training began in 1964 and was broken up into three phases. The first phase was academics, which included college-level lectures, as well as field trips around the world. 
The second phase was contingency training, which focused on survival exercises for unexpected emergencies. His introduction to this phase was being dropped into the jungle in Panama by helicopter to fend for himself. They also learned about dealing with landing in other remote areas, including the desert, as well as splashdown emergencies. The final phase was operational training, where they learned about the equipment, spacecraft systems, and physical sensation of spaceflight. During this phase, he also served as one of the capsule communicators for the Gemini 4 mission. Over two years after his initial astronaut selection, Roger Chaffee received his first space mission as pilot for the Apollo 1 mission on March 21, 1966, alongside Gus Grissom and Ed White. Per the NASA History article on Roger Chaffee, Gus Grissom said of him, Roger is one of the smartest boys I've ever run into. He's just a damn good engineer. There's no other way to explain it. When he starts talking to engineers about their systems, he can just tear those guys apart. I've never seen one like him. He's really a great boy. Chaffee became close to Grissom and White during training for this mission, but he especially became close to Grissom even taking on many mannerisms, including using words and phrases Grissom used. As we know, Apollo 1 caught on fire during a training mission with the three men inside. Chaffee died on January 27, 1967 at 31 years old, leaving his wife and children behind. He was awarded the Congressional Space Medal of Honor in 1997, and a crater on the far side of the moon was named after him. Next week, we will conclude this four-part series on Apollo 1 by focusing on the Apollo 1 mission itself, what went wrong, and lessons learned that came from this tragedy. Geography and World Culture Back in Episode 9, we learned about the Kilauea eruption of 2018, which was a type of shield volcano. Today we are going to go back to our high school classes on geology and earth science and learn more about shield volcanoes. Shield volcanoes are the largest type of volcanoes on earth. They obtained the name due to their resemblance to shields carried by warriors. Shield volcanoes are made almost entirely of a specific type of lava called basalt lava. Basalt lava is a type of lava that is low in viscosity, which means the fluid flows easily. Think about water in syrup. Syrup has a high viscosity and it pours out of a bottle very slowly compared to water, which has a low viscosity and flows very easily. Basalt lava is very fluid and flows very easily as it has a low silica and gas content. Because it flows so easily and can flow far before becoming solid, it creates the gentle slopes that shield volcanoes are known for. Because the lava flows far, these volcanoes can be 20 times wide as they are high. Most shield volcanoes have effusive eruptions, which are the calmest type of volcanic eruption. They produce a steady production and flow of lava, which can come from either the caldera or bowl at the summit or top of the volcano, or from rift zones that are cracks or vents on the flanks of the volcano. Because the lava is so thin, it allows steam, carbon dioxide, and sulfur dioxide to escape, which makes these eruptions much less explosive than other type of volcanoes, such as composite and cinder cone volcanoes. Some of the most famous shield volcanoes are in the Hawaiian Islands, 
with the two most active being Kilauea and Mauna Loa on the Big Island. In fact, until recently, Mauna Loa was thought to be the biggest shield volcano on Earth. But now Puhaunu, which translates into turtle rising for breath, has taken that prize. Shield volcanoes are also not just limited to Earth and can in fact be found on other planets and moons, including Mars and Venus. The shield volcanoes on Mars resemble those on Earth with gentle slopes, collapsed craters, and highly fluid lava, though they are far larger than those found on Earth, with Olympus Mons being the largest. While shield volcanoes may not cause violent eruptions, they can still be destructive, as we learned during the episode on the Kilauea volcanic eruption of 2018, which destroyed many houses. Today's random topic. Today's random topic brings us to New Zealand and the Kopu Bridge, which is the very last swing span bridge in New Zealand. Before we discuss the bridge itself, we need to talk a little bit about the river it crosses, the Waihau River, to learn why the bridge was needed. The Waihau River was important for early exploration of New Zealand and the first European boat to enter the river were manned boats from Captain Cook's ship, the Endeavour, in November of 1769. In the 19th and early 20th century, the river became important for transporting goods and passengers. In the early 20th century, it was determined that a bridge was needed across the river as it would not only serve as an important link between the Thames and Haraki Plains, but also allow for much faster access to Auckland from the Coromandel Peninsula. The Kopu Bridge Project was among the first major projects for the Main Highways Board, which was created in 1922. John Ernest Lelliot Call, who at the time was the first engineer of the Public Works Department, a position he held from 1914 to 1929, was the designer of the bridge. Onslow Garth Thornton supervised the construction, which began in October of 1926. The design of the bridge had to overcome several issues for where it was being built, to include maintaining a course for river traffic, the considerable length needed to span the river, the soft river bottom, which required deep foundation, and the financial constraints of the project. To allow for continuous flow of river traffic, a swing span was built into the design, which was electrically operated. It opened horizontally at a 90 degree angle, providing river vessels a 15.8 meter gap to pass through, though that wasn't always big enough because a couple of boats did hit the bridge in passing. The bridge itself was built in 23 spans with three to four piles under each span of bridge for support. Construction was completed in 1928 and opened in May by Prime Minister Gordon Coates with a ribbon cutting ceremony at the time. The single lane bridge was heavily used and traffic lights were installed after World War II due to increased traffic between Auckland and the Coromandel Peninsula. Over time, river traffic decreased and the swing span was used rarely after 1970. By the 21st century, the daily number of vehicles crossing the single lane bridge averaged 9,000, but increased to twice that during holidays, leading to notorious traffic jams. In late 2011, a new two-lane bridge was built just upstream from the original Kopu Bridge, which was then closed. 
The problem then became what to do with the original Kopu Bridge. The bridge had received the Heritage New Zealand Category 1 Historic Place, which is the highest heritage ranking in New Zealand. After six years of negotiation, the New Zealand Transport Authority handed the bridge over to Kopu Bridge and Community Trust in 2018. The trust plans to fix and then reopen the bridge to pedestrians, cyclists, and for fishing as it is adjacent to the Haraki Rail Trail. People can join the trust with annual dues and help with the day-to-day -day management of the bridge as well as with its long-term goals. The chair of the trust, Ross Bayer, stated of the bridge in an article written by Teresa Ramsey and posted on stuff.co.nz website on May 19, 2018 that it's another asset for the community and potentially another draw card for people to come here. And it's our expectation that tens of thousands of people a year will travel over that bridge, either on bicycles or walk on it. And that concludes this episode of Trivial Knowledge. A little bit about a whole lot. Thank you so much for joining me and I hope you were able to take away some interesting facts that were new to you and that you can share with friends and family or at your local trivia night. If you would like to learn more about topics that you enjoyed today, you can access links to more in-depth articles on my show notes blog post on my website www.trivialknowledgepodcast.com. That's www.trivialknowledgepodcast.com. If you have questions or would like to leave comments about today's episode, please email me at trivialknowledge5 at gmail.com or contact me via social media links on my website. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with your family and friends. I look forward to our new adventures next week when we will conclude our Apollo 1 series and much, much more. I will end this episode with a quote from Roger Chaffee. It took me four years to learn how little I knew. Knowledge is vast. There's so much more to learn, and I'm going to take advantage of every opportunity that comes along. Join me next week to learn a little bit more about a whole lot.